Okay, I want to I want to take us back to start with to Friday the fifteenth of March, two thousand and nineteen, in Christchurch, in New Zealand. Men, women, and children had gone to Friday prayers at two local mosques in Christchurch, and Breton Tarrant had decided significantly earlier that he would use that day to make a, state, a, a significant statement, a terrifying and horrific statement, in an act of mass murder. You might remember it. He entered those two mosques early in that afternoon and opened fire, basically shooting anyone he could see. 51 people died that day. 51. 40 other people were injured. And he live-streamed most of what he did. Wanting everyone to see the evil that he was, that he was committing. He even published, published a manifesto, the reasoning behind this act, this terrible, evil act that he inflicted on so many. Because he wanted people to understand what he was doing and the message he was trying to send. And those who died that day died simply because they were Muslims. That's it. It's a terrible, evil act, isn't it? 17 months later, the court reached their decision that Brenton Tarrant would spend the rest of his life in jail without the possibility of parole. It's the first time such a punishment has been handed out in a New Zealand court. And this is what Judge Cameron Mander said as he summed up the case, which should come up on the screen as well. He said, Your crimes are so wicked that even if you are detained until you die, it will not exhaust the requirements of punishment. And he's right, isn't he? Life in prison isn't enough. Spend the rest of the life in jail. But that's not fair. That's not just. 51 lives lost, so many others shattered by grief. What he did was so despicably evil. Justice has not been spent just by a lifetime in jail. Our justice system is charged with seeking to ensure that justice is done, that people get the appropriate penalty for the crimes that they commit, for the horror and the hurt that they might cause. And while our justice system and New Zealand's justice system are very good, justice is so often not done, is it? So often not done. So many times that the punishment just seems like a little slap on the wrist inconsequential given what they've done. Sometimes there's simply not enough evidence and the people who are guilty of crimes get away with it, walk free, only to commit again. On the other hand, some suffer unjust punishment for things they didn't do. All of this happens, and when this happens, those to those we are close to, and we see that occur, we long, we long for justice to be done, don't we? We long for wrongs to be righted, for the truth to out, for, for punishment to be made that fits the crime. And we live in a world where justice is not done. Human life matters, and because human life matters, justice matters. In all of this, have you ever asked the question, I suspect you have, where is God in all of this? Where is the God of justice? Does he, does he care about the mess that our world is in? And the injustice that marks our world, will justice ever be done? I suspect there's some of us here where this issue is something that you feel even more deeply than the rest of us because you've seen an injustice done with those close to you and you've seen the perpetrators get off so lightly. 
and it cuts deep. And you feel it deeply. In Genesis 4, we're confronted with a harsh reality of injustice. And we are forced to ask the question, what is God going to do? What is God doing about it? There are vitally important questions to ask. I hope today that as we open God's Word, Genesis 4 and 5, we will reflect on these questions that we need to ask and, and what God has to say about this unjust world in which we find ourselves. And I hope that as we do that, we'll find hope and comfort in God's Word in the face of the injustice of this world. Let's pray together as we continue to look at God's Word. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that you have spoken so powerfully, so clearly. We live in such a broken world and we need to hear what you say. So, Father, help us to listen. Help us to hear the comforting words. Help us to remember, be reminded of the God that you are, of what you've done and what it means to trust you and obey you. Move us, we pray, by your Spirit. Amen. So as we step into chapter 4, we're really stepping into a world marred by sin and broken by curse, aren't we? We're so quickly confronted in chapter 4 with the mess and the evil of our world and of humanity. Adam and Eve are blessed by God with a child. A firstborn son, Cain, and later they're blessed again with another son, Abel. Uh, Abel, we're told, kept the flocks. Um, Cain worked the cursed ground, and that cursed ground yielded uh, fruit for him. At some point, they both bring an offering to the Lord. Notice they both acknowledge God, and they know that God is the one who's given them these good things. Even in this land of curse... And they seek to honour him in some way with their offering. But Abel's offering is accepted by God. Cain's is rejected. Why? Well, we're told that Abel brought the fat portions of the, and the firstborn of the flock, the best of the flock. Uh, we're told that Cain just brought some of the fruits of the soil. Now, that might be the difference that comes out. Uh, but if that's the case, even if that is the case, it's hard to tell from the text. But the real reason his offering is rejected is because... Cain's offering is a reflection of his attitude to God. That's actually the real reason his offering is rejected. It's the heart of the one making the sacrifice that matters more than the sacrifice itself. And we see in Cain's reaction to the rejection of his offering, we see the dark heart that God saw in the offering that he made. Cain's response shows an arrogance to God, doesn't it? An unwillingness to honour God, to seek his mercy, to seek his forgiveness. Instead he feels God, God owes him somehow. And so he's furious with God and he takes that fury out on his brother. They're together in the field. Cain turns to Abel and turns on him. And in an act of wanton violence and jealous-filled rage, kills him. In cold blood. Abel did nothing wrong. Abel is described as a righteous man later on in the New Testament, but in this fit of jealous, hatred fueled rage, Cain ends his life. So the first human to die in Genesis doesn't die from the curse of God, he dies from the hand of his own brother that he grew up with. That he knew so well. It's a despicable act of evil. So God confronts Cain. 
But notice, unlike Adam and Eve, he doesn't, he doesn't hide away from God, does he? He actually, he actually lies to his face. He defies God. He stands against God. I don't know where Abel is, and then he denies any responsibility for Abel's welfare. You know, he says, am I my brother's keeper? Just putting it out there to God? What are you asking me this for? But God exposes his sin and judges Cain, curses him to wander the earth. The cursed ground is already cursed, but for Cain it will be even worse. It will be even harder for him to yield the fruit from the ground and he'll wander without a home, restless and cursed. And notice, notice Cain's response to this judgment. What does he do? He has a wing. He has a wine. It's too much for me to bear. What are you doing to me? It's not fair. It's too harsh. Notice Cain doesn't show any remorse for what he's done. Cain, like so many guilty men and women, failed to appreciate the gravity of what they've done. And it's as if the guilt doesn't touch them. Untouched. Bury their guilt. And then he's afraid that people might find him and kill him. Can you see the irony in, in that fear? I mean, what did he do to Abel? He found him and killed him. It's hypocrisy. God, in an astounding act of grace to Cain, marks Cain in such a way that it'll mean that people won't kill him in fear of the retribution from God. But what that mark is, we, we aren't told. It doesn't really matter. But God spares Cain the worst of what he deserves. And Cain then lives out this curse. He settles in the land of Nod. The word Nod means wandering. So he settles in the land of wandering. It's sort of a bit of a contradiction really, isn't it? He lives out his curse. He takes a wife. He has kids. And then we're given his family line, down generations, down to his despicable, vengeful, violent, great, 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 great grandson Lanark. And we get a little eye into the character of this man in his poetic uh, words to his two wives, verse 23. Adar and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. Wouldn't want to be his wife, would you? What a piece of work this guy is. For Cain, it was God who would take the vengeance if someone did something to Cain. Lamech takes it into his own hands. Someone wounds him, and so he kills him. More wanton violence. And in this chapter, these two incidents with Cain and Lamech give us a window into life in this broken world of curse, this God-forsaken world. And it's not a place you really want to live, is it? It's a terrible place. No rule of justice, ruled by the powerful, no way to bring them to account. The rule of humanity that was meant to be good is turned into a source of abuse and hatred, self-serving power, domination. Relationships are marked not by love and care, but by violence, self-interest and jealousy. What we see in this chapter is our broken world. The world that we live in, every, every now and then, throughout the scriptures, we see what mankind becomes without the restraining hand of God's judgment. We see it, we'll see it next week when we look at the uh, life before the flood. Other places you see it where you see it really strongly, Judges 19 and 20, if you've taken notes, you can have a look at that. 
where you see the nation of Israel just descend into destructive, abusive, sexual immorality, civil war and violence. And then in the time of Manasseh, 2 Kings 21, when he sacrifices his own child to, to try and appease his gods and fills Jerusalem with the blood of innocent men and women. It's a terrible picture. We live in a world that without the grace of God, without the rule of law, turns into unrestrained and destructive, self-interested sin. And every now and then we're reminded of that ugly side of the human heart, aren't we? Mainly in the horrors of war or in the anarchy that comes after a natural disaster where it's just each man for himself. What I find most, one of the most shocking things I think about the horrors of Nazi Germany in World War II is, yes, what the leaders did, like, like Hitler and his henchmen, but I think even more shocking is what normal, peace-loving Germans did too under that regime, who knowingly took part in horrific evil acts of genocide. Destroying others to preserve themselves, duped, deceived, led into evil, but willingly playing their part in this terrible evil. Humanity is capable of profound evil. And we see the beginnings of that in Genesis 4. And it's shocking. And that raises the question, where is God in all of this mess? Why doesn't he do something about it? And I think, if anything, chapter 4 of Genesis serves to highlight that question for us and underline it for us. It raises it for us. How does God respond to the wanton violence of Cain? Well, he sets them wandering about the land. Yes, yes, he's cursed. He's wandering about the land. And the ground is cursed for him, heightening the experience of the curse put on Adam and Eve. But he killed his brother for crying out loud. How is that just? And then when he whinges about the fact that someone might find him and kill him, God protects him. It's not justice, is it? He deserves more than that. Cain all but gets away with violent and jealous murder. And then his great-great-great-great-grandson remembers what happened to Cain and uses that as an excuse for more wanton violence. And he's proud of it. And what does God do? To learn. Nothing. Chapter 4 of Genesis raises a question that we all want answers to. Where is God in the evil and the injustice of this world? What's he doing? Why do people again and again get away with so much evil? He seems to be just be letting the world roll on in this mess that we've made of it. Well, that's exactly what he's doing, actually. He is letting us roll on in the mess that we've made of our world. And that's actually part of his judgment. Have a look at this passage from Romans chapter 1. Uh, if you want to uh, pull up the passage on your Bibles or on your phones to get the full context, do that. Um, but the key verses will come up here for you. In verse 18, Paul says that God's wrath is being revealed in this world now. That's what he says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress their truth, the truth, sorry, by their wickedness. Why? Why is God judging the world now? 
or because of our sin, our deliberate rejection of God, you see it in verse 21. Here's the reason. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts darkened. So what is this judgment that God is now pouring upon this world? His fury at our sin? Well, he gives us over to our sinful desires. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Then again, verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Verse 28, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, eve, greed, depravity. And then the list goes on as you read through the following verses. It's a bit like Genesis 4, isn't it? It sounds like Genesis 4, which is actually our world too. The mess of our sin, the mess that our world is in, the injustice, the evil, the depravity in so many ways goes unchecked. And this is part of the way that God is judging our world. You see, we wanted life without God. And he said, okay, if that's what you want, that's what you get. And it's not pretty. And so he leaves us in the mess that we asked for. That's an important part of God's answer to our deep questions when we experience the injustice of this world. We are being judged for us. But as an answer, it's not all that satisfying, is it? It doesn't, doesn't quite meet the expectations of justice that we have for God. If God is a God of justice, surely this judgment is just in just leaving us to our own devices and the mess that we've made. Surely that's incomplete justice. Moses says this in his farewell speech to the Israelites on the edge of the promised land in Deuteronomy 31, 32. He says of God, he is the rock, his works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. That's the God that we meet in the Bible. And if all God does is leave us in the mess that we've made of this world, then in all of this injustice, if that's the sum of his judgment, then it doesn't actually match his character, does it? Surely that's not the end of his judgment. Surely there's more to be done. It's not the end of his judgment. The judgment that our world is groaning under now is just a warning of the judgment that is to come. The day when we'll all stand before our God, our Maker, our Creator, and we'll all be held to account for every word, every thought, every action. Have a look at the, what the writer of Hebrews says as he speaks about this coming day of judgment. He says, For the word of God is active, alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That day of accounting is coming. So when we feel the injustice of this world, when we're affected by it ourselves, when we long for justice to be done and for God to bring judgment on those who've wronged us and wronged others, isn't it wonderful to know that God brings justice? That judgment will come. That justice will be done. He will act justly. He sees the evil. There'll be no lack of evidence on that day. There'll be no corrupt judges. People will get what they deserve. 
But as we think about that coming day, we also need to remember the mirror that we looked in last week, the mirror that is Genesis chapter 3. The sin of Adam and Eve, the evil rebellious heart that says to God, God, you don't know me. You don't want what's good for me. I can't trust you. You don't understand. I want to be the one who decides. Let me begin. That evil, sinful heart of Adam and Eve, that's our heart too. We treated God like that. And so when you think, yeah, God, come and bring justice, you need to remember that you're asking that for yourself too. Are you ready to cry out for God to be just? Uncompromisingly just? When you consider the way that you've treated him, when you consider that he is the one from whom nothing is hidden, he knows our secrets evil heart. So when we see the injustice of the world and ask, demand that God bring justice, we need to remember to seek just judgment. It's not just just judgment for those out there, but it's also just judgment for me too. So let's go back to Genesis 4 and 5 because we haven't yet Finish the picture that's painted here, because in chapter 5 we see the promise of comfort in the face of rampant evil. After the sin and curse of chapter 4 and chapter 3, verse 1 of chapter 5 reminds us of the blessing and the honour and the, and the wonder of being created in the image of God. Man and woman blessed by God and honoured as his image bearers in this world. And being reminded of that in the face of Genesis 3 and 4, helps us see that God hasn't given up on this world, as broken as it is. The genealogy in Seth's line shows us that he's still at work. The honour and responsibility of being made in the image of God may have been marred, may have been fractured by sin, but it hasn't been lost, and God's at work. The genealogy of Seth's line is markedly different to that of Cain's in chapter 4, isn't it? You know, the, the particular people we meet in chapter 5, in this line, like Enoch, fills us with hope rather than horror. And so Enoch, a, a man who walked with God, I love, love the way it simply says, and one day he was not. This is a beautiful little line, isn't it? But he was taken, spared by God of this ongoing life in the land of curse. And then we meet Noah. At the end of the chapter, described verse 29, you can see it there in front of you, verse 29, as one who will comfort us from the labour and painful toil of our hands. Remember last week, back in Genesis 3, verse 15, we're told that there would be a seed of a woman who would crush the serpent's head, who would deal with the evil that has come into this world and put an end to this rebellion. And as we look through this godly line of Seth, we're looking for, looking for this offspring of the woman who will deal with evil in this way. So maybe Noah's the one who will comfort us in the curse that we experience. And so we end chapter 5 with an air of expectation. Will he be the one? Well, you'll have to come back next week to find out. No spoilers. Although I suspect most of you worked it out already. So we'll skip Noah for now. I want to take us to Jesus. I want us to see how Jesus is an answer to this big question of the injustice of our world. A vital part of God's answer to the problem of injustice that we all feel and all suffer under. Remember our problem? Our problem was that we long for justice, but we don't want to receive it. We want things to be made right, but as we do that, we need to recognise that we're wrong. 
that we're part of the problem. That's deep in sin, rebellious against God, deserving of his fury and eternal wrath. So how can God give comfort to people who deserve his anger? The answer is in Jesus. He takes on in himself the fury, the judgment, the just judgment that we deserve from God. So that guilty men and women like you and me can be recipients of God's mercy and forgiveness. We see this idea in this passage from Romans chapter 3. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. That's a way of talking about the he took the anger of God. That's what he did. Through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Verse 25 tells us what we saw in Genesis 4. God left the sins beforehand unpunished. Yes, he's judging right now, but he's holding back his final judgment. And he held it back until Jesus came and then poured out that final judgment on him instead. That's what he did. Jesus takes the fury of God in our place. Jesus, our representative, in his death, Justice is done. Just judgment is poured out. So we, those sinners deserving of judgment, can be forgiven, set free. This is the only way we can be set free from the justice that we deserve from God. And the stunning thing is, no matter what you've done, no matter how you've treated God, no matter how you've treated people made in his image, we can be forgiven if we put our trust in Jesus, if we repent and are covered by the sacrifice that was made in him. And we can be counted as worthy of eternal life. What an amazing gift in the face of what we deserve. But if we don't offer, we don't accept this offer of forgiveness, then there's no way we can escape the judgment and the anger that we deserve from God, the day when everything will be laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so that day is coming. The day of judgment is coming. But justice will be done. And in the meantime, we wait. We wait for Jesus, the judge, to return, for his patience with the mess that we've made of this world to run out, because it will run out. And now, in this meantime, we can take comfort that on that day, justice will be done. Those who've done evil, who've got away with terrible treatment of others, their indifference to God, will come face to face with the living God who made them and who died for them. We long for justice, and rightly so. God has planted that desire deep in our hearts. We know it must be done. The day of final justice and judgment is coming, and that's a good thing, isn't it? It's great to know that justice will be done. But in the face of that, I really need to ask you tonight, are you ready for it? Are you ready for that day of judgment to come? Are you ready to face God, your judge? Really important question to ask. There's no more important question to ask. If you, if you think like Cain that you can stand defiant in front of him, that won't work. God's not someone you can defy like that. Without Christ, there is a fear, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God, your judge. 
But with Christ, we can have complete confidence of sins forgiven, being able to stand before God and be in his presence, forgiven, washed clean, a child of the living God. Just judgment poured on Jesus instead of me. And if you're not confident to face that day yet, if you haven't done that business with God, then don't put it off. Because that day's coming. Talk to someone today. Find answers for your questions. And find refuge in the Son, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you have bent the knee to Jesus, repented of your sin, rebellion against God and accepted his death on your behalf, then how do we respond to this coming day of justice that is coming? One last passage, Romans chapter 12, which speaks of how we should live in the light of the coming wrath. He says, Paul says, Don't repay evil with evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. God is the one who does what is just. He judges impartially. He judges with justice. With the injustice that we might experience here on earth, we can be confident that God will judge. We can leave that in his hands. So don't repay evil for evil. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Know that you can leave the judgment to God. That's a great thing, isn't it? It's a great confidence we have. And that's not to say we should never seek justice in the law courts. Of course we should. Or just become a doormat letting everybody walk all over us. No, that's not actually loving to them, is it? And it's not actually loving to anybody who might be hurt by them in the future. But we can treat our enemies, those who harm us, with love, knowing that we don't need to take justice into our hands. God's got that. That's okay. That's good. Our God is a God of uncompromising justice. He is the rock. His ways are perfect. And all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you are the great God who will do justice. But even more than that, we want to praise and thank you that you are the God that in the face of our sin sent Jesus to die in our place, that your fury will be poured out on him in our place so that you might still be just and yet the forgiver of sinners. Thank you for that amazing salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us to be people who long for justice to be done and also long for people to be forgiven. We pray, Lord Jesus, come. Come and put this broken world right. But help us in the meantime to continue to trust in you, knowing that without you we are worthy of your anger. But in Christ, we become your children. What a great gift. Help us to live that out. Help us to love our enemies as you have loved us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.